So Patagonia released a line of clothing where on the back of the label, it says, vote the assholes out, pardon the French. And that was shared all across social media, simply because it was such a, the tone was obviously engaging, shall we say, um, economical and a choice of language. But also, you know, there's a little sensationalism to that. There's something that's very strident about that point of view. Like, when was the last time you went and took a photo of a label and a clothing that you have and shared it with all your friends? I mean, that's an unusual behavior. So all of that is to say, the reason purpose is so important to brands right now is when they show a commitment to something larger than themselves, whether it's universal belonging with Airbnb or responsible economy with Patagonia or whatever it might be, that's when you align around those shared values with consumers, with citizens, they engage, they share that content, they advocate and amplify it, and, and you're off to the races. And that's how you can build a movement as a brand. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and those wise words come from We First Branding CEO, the author of We First, and the host of the Lead With We podcast, Simon Mainwaring, who comes back on the Keep It Real series to help you build a movement with your brand. So on today's episode, Simon shares that earned media is found at the edges of conversations, how to align your message with your organization's values, and that success is ultimately an inside job. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Simon Mainwaring. Enjoy. We will go live in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is we first, Simon Mainwaring. We're back again. Simon, thanks for being here again. Good to see you, Kevin. A month like that, gone. It's gone. It's quick. And today is the 21st of September, a day we're all forced to remember. What were you, what were you doing on uh, 1978, September 21st, when the Earth, Wind & Fire came out with that song? Um, I think I was probably learning how to ride a skateboard with the world's largest motorcycle helmet on my head because my mother didn't want me to hurt myself. So I was probably basically wiping out any appeal that I had to young ladies at that age simply by trying to ride a skateboard with a motorcycle helmet. True confession. Smart, smart mother. Now wearing smart. wearing uh, protection is very important uh, because we we want. <laughs> is that the public? That's the public safety message for today. That's Obviously, beautiful. the helmet didn't work because you're kind of you know a little little messed up in the head. But you know, absolutely. We're, you yeah, know, uh, all we I get is try sometimes, I guess. Right, right. And uh, yeah, 1978. It seems like. You know, the 80s, I know the 80s are coming back around. A lot of marketing and advertising and branding out there, you see the 80s coming back. And I'm realizing it's 40 years ago. And when your heyday was 40 years ago, you start to worry that time is not what it used to be. It seems to be flying past. And even more so in this COVID time, it seems so strange. Well, see, Simon, I think you're, you're nice and fresh. Uh, and I, that's a topic I want to get into today is that is multi-generational leadership. What can mm-hmm. uh, people coming up in the workforce learn from those above them? What can those above them learn from those coming up in the workforce? I think it's an interesting topic. A few companies are inviting young members on their board due to recent events like Greta or Mal- uh, Malala, things like that that are having a, a big impact because a lot of companies think it's all about you know preserving the next generation, leaving a legacy. What are your thoughts 
right now in this day and age about uh, incorporating uh, young leaders in, in boardrooms and in decisions? Uh, I think it's critical for two reasons. One, the best qualified leaders for the future are those in some sense whose lives are going to be most directly impacted by that future. And these young people have come, you know, in, in, into this world and to find a house on fire in, in many degrees. And they have no kind of legacy thinking or behavior holding them back. The existing conditions that they're solving for are acute and they're urgent. And so they have an immediacy and a scale of response that a lot of older folks don't have. That said, you know, those who are more senior than them that have had full careers up to this date do have a lot of experience that they can benefit from because the business of business is something you need to understand. It's one thing to have the intent. It's another to execute against that in a way that's going to go to scale. And so I do think they need to meet in the middle. And to your point about having them on boards, I think boards have huge diversity issues outright. And I think there's very few boards that really have a, a decent representation of youth. I think there'd be a way to lurch things forward. It, what are some other ways? You know, Maybe what is the mindset? a leader has to have. I had someone that I was speaking with just off off the air and he was saying, you know, I, I am so inspired by your generation. Uh and I think it's, you know, up to you guys to to solve the the problems of today's day and age. And I kind of took a step back, I was like, we need to work together on this. This is a yeah. everybody game. What are your thoughts yeah. on how a business leader can maybe change the mindset of working and helping uh, the next generation? Well I think one of the most powerful shifts we've seen is whether you look back at you know Greta around Climate Week and so many beyond that around Black Lives Matter and gun control and so on, mm-hmm. you see these incredibly self-possessed young people who aren't waiting for anyone else to have a solution and they're certainly not looking to brands or corporations to solve things for them. They are saying, listen, if I got 5000 bucks and a, you know, a clipboard and a pen, I'm off to drive some change. So I'm very, very inspired by just how they've, they've all given themselves agency to change things. At the same time, this whole mindset that a leader is somehow this solitary figure, arguably at the top, is so misguided. You know, one of the things I'm very passionate about at We First, hence the name, is how we actually lead together. Because think about it. No amount of young, positive, well-intended social enterprises are going to solve for these issues if the big companies out there are still going about business as usual and hurting the environment and doing what they've always done. Or no amount of enlightened CEOs up at Davos talking about how they want to change the world is going to make any difference if consumers are still going about things the way they've always done and buying products and packaging and so on that's hurting the planet. Until we realize we all are in this together and we all have to solve for it together, we're never going to kind of meet the challenges we face with equal force. And so I love the self-possession of younger demographics and, you know, people of color and women and all of these fantastic kind of movements that are long overdue. But at the same time, we've got to couple that with the fact is we're all on the hook. If we all want to benefit from the results of all of this work, then we all have to assume the responsibilities to get there. Now, your book uh, talks about, I mean, I must read the title off right here, how brands and consumers can use social media to build a better world. One of the first examples you use in this book is about Haiti how social media can drive donations to certain areas where you can see sure. victims uh, through geolocation, mm-hmm. geotagging, mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that that may have not have been there uh, in a pre-social media world. With a younger generation growing up on social media, when you talk about what you ate in the morning for breakfast on Twitter, and in wow. that day and age, what type of impact do you think this is going to have long-term 
on these situations and how can social media be used in a proactive way versus more destruction? I think social media is is a bit of a double-edged sword right now. You know, you've got films out there like The Social Dilemma, which a lot of people are responding to. And, you know, even my daughters, I've got a 21 and an 18-year-old daughter, and, you know, they always say the phone eats first. Like when you sit down to the table or you go to a, you go out, they take a photo of what the hell they're eating in the first place. And I'm like, who is that for? And if it is for them, why do they care now or ever? But... I think social media is in a very difficult place. There's a lot of dialogue around um, how it's been sort of hijacked in service of data mining, invasions of privacy, polarizing issues, including politics and so on and so on and so on. And then you hear, you know, the various stories around TikTok and all these other things that, you know, are really sort of challenging in terms of privacy. Mm. I, I would say that, the, you know, the reason I wrote that book and the you know, hopeful ambition I had in writing the book was that it gave us a chance to reweave the social fabric independent of time and geography. I can talk to someone in China in real time and so on and so on. And what it did was it broke this false separation between leaders and institutions with consumers or citizens. Like, you know, before social media, you could find out a certain amount on the web and so on, but you really couldn't enact change. You couldn't self-mobilize. You couldn't scale impact on your on your own, in your own right. And I think that promise is still true of social media and the issues we're solving for are becoming even more serious, which gives you even more cause to do it. At the same time, I feel like our attention is being atomized at a time when the world is falling apart. Mm-hmm. We are sitting there going, Oh my God, a text came in. Oh my God, did you see that TikTok? And oh my God, I gotta, I gotta you know, post this food and then see that cat video on Facebook. Oh my God, I got emails to answer. And one of the most powerful things any of us can do is recognize the role that social media can play, but step back and look at the world clear eyed and go, what do we need to do to make a difference for ourselves as well as everybody else? What is media's role in this whole thing? A lot of people right now have these knee-jerk reactions, me included. I'll see a headliner on Twitter. I'll immediately want to reach, retweet it, talk about it, and tell the world about it until I do actual research behind this. Um, that's, the, that's the game of media. Who can write the best headline instead of doing actual research, instead of taking time and reading a big book like this, right? What, what do you have to say about media's responsibility in this in terms of factual information and getting the right information out there? I think there's still a lot of great journalism and resources to be had. The social media today is like skimming a rock across a lake. You just touch down on topics for a second and keep moving, skimming across, ignoring the fact that the lake is 200 feet deep. And that robs us of the opportunity to have informed opinions, in which case we're all running around duking it out and amplifying ill-informed or under-informed opinions And that's just compounding the problem. And this is what I mean by our attention is being atomized. We're being trained to be distracted in ever more sophisticated ways. So the the distraction is becoming sophisticated. Meanwhile, some very nefarious things are going on behind the scenes, depending on what you think about the world or your politics or anything else. And a lot of things as a function of all of our efforts are falling apart. And so I think media more broadly is wrestling with the fact that it's a freemium model now. And so they've got to generate advertising sales to even stay in business in some way. 
but at the same time, they want to discharge their original duty, which is to kind of provide information with integrity and and communicate what is the objective truth, if there is such a thing. And now we see this tussle going between fake news and, you know, and arguably, you know, researched information. And the great fear I have about this, Kevin, is that if this goes on long enough, people won't believe anything. Like, there will be no compass for how we orientate our thoughts and our actions and our lives. Mm. But rather, it'll just be a churn. It'll be like this fire hose of misinformation, in which case that can be very disorientating for people. You won't know which way to turn. You won't have solid ground under your feet. And that makes it hard to not only have a point of view, but then to organize around those points of view and solve for these issues. It's really scary. And do you think that comes from data being misconstrued? Uh, for in, in, in just association with the person, for instance, if you watch Fox, you're not going to believe in CNN. You watch CNN, you're not going to be a, a, believe a Fox data research, you know, something like that. Where do you think that comes from and how do you avoid uh, providing wrong or um, misconstruing data? I think, you know, media more broadly, which is you know, a very general term, but especially social media is not an exercise in content. It's a manipulation of human psychology. I mean, a lot of the Facebook engineers, and there was a recent New York Times editorial, and you see it in this film, The Social Dilemma, I think in a lot of cases, we are the guinea pigs in these massive, you know, psychological experiments that are going on. And they will, you know, to what end? They could manipulate you to think a certain way on a certain issue, to vote for a certain party, to buy a certain product, to take up arms or to go to sleep, you know, and so... You know, if information was to some degree impartial, now that it's sort of, you know, uh, fluid, shall we say, and it's been hijacked, what do we do? You know, what do we do in terms of finding solid ground for ourselves? So I don't know whether human humanity will course correct. I don't know whether there'll be a richer point of intolerance where people either step away from their phones, step away from social media, you're seeing them step away from certain platforms which don't suit them, like Facebook, younger people use it less and so on and so on. But um, as to whether our sense of self-awareness and self-possession can override our addiction, our, our nurtured addiction to these channels. It's hard to say. I had someone tell me the other day that data is now more valuable than big oil. And yeah. uh, I've had blockchain guests come on the show and say, you should be paid for your data. What are your thoughts on uh, consumers getting money for the data that they provide to big companies that use it maybe unethically? Well, I think there's two points of view. One is that ship has already sailed, so stop being naive and you might as well get paid for it. Every television, every phone we have is watching and listening to us and mining the information with AI. It's already done. In fact, it used to be that the real world would dictate our virtual lives. You know, we'd go out, we'd see a movie, we'd see friends, and then we might go and look online and find a a hotel to go on holiday to in Hawaii. Now... Our real lives are data points for the virtual world because even before we want to go to Hawaii, we've got ads in our stream because they're seeing that we're looking at photos of Hawaii or someone else's holiday. So we are actually, we've been productized. We are the product. We are just fleshware whose role is to generate data points that can be then leveraged to whatever end those in control of that data want to achieve. And so, you know, this whole idea of data farms isn't so ineptly named. I mean, they are literally farming our data and by extension, farming us. We are being, we are the industrial product Mm. 
that you know is being taken to market um, with advertisers and others. So it's 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 a very difficult time to navigate, and it can be a little bit disheartening. You can sit there and go, "Wow, what are we gonna do?" Who knows? Who knows? Uh, let's keep talking about it, though. Maybe we'll come to a conclusion. Uh, yeah, we'll right. We'll solve it right here and now. Exactly. So let's. So you said addiction. You said this uh, this art of consumption. Uh, it's right mm. in our hands. What are some brands that stick out to you that have incorporated a digital experience into their products where they can uh, have their consumers digest information in a different way, where they can take photos with their product and post it online for free and give this company more brand awareness? Are there any examples that stick out to you uh, of companies yeah. incorporating a digital experience like this? Absolutely. And I think it doesn't turn on the digital or social experience outright. It turns on what would motivate somebody to share or to align with a brand and share content or point to a product on the strength of that point of view. So, for example, you know, when Patagonia said when the you know, access to public lands was an issue and mining rights were being opened up by the Trump administration to Bears Ears, this public lands, you know, they took it upon themselves to push back and, and protest that. But in the same short order, they built a platform called ActionWorks, which married regular citizens with nonprofits that were advocating for protection of public lands. And so here you have a brand, you know, leveraging all its might to make a higher ordered commitment to something larger than itself, in that case, public lands, in which case people share it and so on. And they want to I'll give you an example, another example, like last week. So Patagonia released a line of clothing where on the back of the label, it says, vote the assholes out, pardon the trench. And that was shared all across social media simply because it was such a, the tone was obviously engaging, shall we say, um, economical and a choice of language. But also, you know, there's a little sensationalism to that. There's something that's very strident about that point of view, like, when was the last time you went and took a photo of a label and a clothing that you have and shared it with all your friends? I mean, that's an unusual behavior. So all of that is to say the reason purpose is so important to brands right now is when they show a commitment to something larger than themselves, whether it's universal belonging with Airbnb or responsible economy with Patagonia or whatever it might be, that's when you align around those shared values with consumers, with citizens, they engage, they share that content, they advocate and amplify it. And, and you're off to the races. And that's how you can build a movement as a brand. I had the uh, director for, of philosophy on my show from Patagonia. And I asked him, can every company be a certified B corporation? Can every company integrate sustainability and uh, movements like the ones you just mentioned with the back of the tags on their labels? Uh, and the answer was actually, if it's core to their business model, if it's something uh-huh. that is right for them, your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, <sighs> There is the only thing worse than not being purposeful as a company at a time when we've got so many crises that we're solving for is to be disingenuous about it. You know, if you want to communicate a purpose or go to market with an impact message of some sort, but it's not core to the business, it's not authentic, it's not aligned, it's not what you're set up to actually execute on successfully, then for you, you run the risk of being accused of cause washing, greenwashing, purpose washing. For everyone else, you're not going to solve for any issue because your business isn't structured or set up or committed in a way to actually make that possible, mm. in which case everybody's wasting their time and you're, you're the worst type of cynic in a sense because you're taking something which is so potentially impactful 
and co-opting it disingenuously. I mean, look at what happened with VW and the diesel emission scandal, where they wanted to, you know, they manipulated the software to meet or exceed EPA emissions standards. Or look at, you know, Wells Fargo, when, you know, the, the idea of actually closing and opening new account, closing new business and opening new accounts was so pathologically driven internally that all of those fake accounts were, you know, added up, all under the guise of really serving customers better. So when you, these are extreme examples, but when you do it disingenuously, the blowback, the, the backfire, you know, the backlash is, is enormous, exponential. Let's talk about a few industries right now, or maybe it's just one industry, education, that hasn't really come up to speed yet, I guess. Uh, you just were mentioning how, let's say, digital natives or millennials or anyone right now are, are obtaining information, uh, digesting this information, understanding it, yet we're still teaching through a textbook in today's day and age. What are you currently doing uh, with education, uh, not reform, but education and professors at Harvard? And where do you see as a futurist the educate the future of education going? Yeah, we're lucky to be partnering with Harvard Business School Association of Boston to do a series of webinars over the next um, 12 months. The first one is actually on this Thursday, the 24th, I believe. Um, and it's all around um, uh, brands with a purpose. And what we're doing in that webinar is we're actually getting the head of strategy from VF Corporation that owns brands like Timberland, North Face, um, and Vans, and then the head of sustainability from Procter & Gamble, one of the largest CPGs in the world, and also the head of the developer ecosystem at IBM, who is leading this call for code, which is a big competition to solve for climate and COVID-19. And really, the theme is self-disruption, those large global enterprises that are disrupting themselves and their industries. And so, you know, from an education point of view, what we're trying to do at We First, my company, is get as much out there as we can. We have my podcast lead with We. We're doing these webinars. I write a column in Forbes, you know, called Purpose of Work. You know, and you've got to really embrace this idea that you're a media company. And we've gone from the why of things in a sense of why should we be doing things differently to the how, because these issues we're solving for are so acute. So to answer your question, rethink of yourself, reframe yourself, no matter what you do, what business you're in, as to whatever degree you can in a media company and deliver it in these various forms, these different formats, you know, podcasts, blogs, webinars, and so on. And you have to show up and have a voice, A, to cut through the clutter, but B, if you want to drive earned media and build your business and awareness of your brand, that earned media is found at the edges of conversations. Mm. It's not in the middle of the fairway you're being safe, saying, hey, everything should be fine and this and that, and, you know, we can balance. You have to have a point of view and you have to be clear about what you want to solve for. And then you drive those conversations. And yes, it will polarize people, but it will also deepen the loyalty of those who align with you. And it will also allow you to drive earned media and, you know, be seen as a leader who is actually leading in the sense that you're giving people someone to follow. And that's when you can really unlock value through the education you're providing. So is that where you would suggest business owners start? And how, do they, how does a business owner transition uh, to become a purpose-driven, value-oriented company? Well, you know, back to the Patagonia comment about, you know, you need to, it needs to be true to your core business, is you've really got to recognize that every business exists for a reason. No one woke up in the morning and just said, I'm going to go and make whatever to make as much as I can, and that's going to 
be enough. I mean, there was some need that they wanted to answer. There's some interest they had in some category. There was some problem they wanted to solve for. You've got to articulate what that is, distill it down into the purpose of the organization, and then position your company, its products and services as social proof of how you're executing against that higher order purpose. So where you start is working out what that purpose is as an organization. And, you know, we have a methodology through which we do that for companies large and small. But the power of it is when you do, you can lead a movement in service of that purpose in which all stakeholders are building a business with you, your suppliers, your employees, your customers, consumers, partners, everyone's out there going, wow, you know, I think this is awesome what you're doing. Um, It aligns with who I am. I'm not only going to buy your product because it has that badge value built into it. I'm going to share your stuff. I'm going to talk about it to others. And when I go online, like here's where every business lives or dies. Every business after 25 years in marketing all around the world and working on Nike and running Motorola for Ogilvy, here's it all is. When you go to your computer and someone has a choice of putting in training shoes or sneakers, I don't know, what do we call them in America? Is it trainers or sneakers? Yeah, training shoes. Cross training. Trainers. You have the choice of putting in trainers or Nike or trainers and Adidas or trainers and ASICs. Your business will live or die on the strength of whether it's in the consideration set, set top of mind when someone goes down to order a product. Are you going to get lost in the category or are they going to consciously choose you because the way that you show up in the world? See, I think that's the game right now for any purpose-driven company. How do you create a comparable? Can you bring your price down to an economically uh, just and I don't know. Uh, can you bring it down to an economical price where it's either the same or just above where a consumer is mm-hmm. going to look at that and say, okay, $10 for this Nike shoe, $10 for this Adidas shoe. This one's made from recycled waste. This one mm-hmm. uh, was made in, uh, you know, factories in China and that have mm-hmm. uh, horrible labor laws. What shoe mm-hmm. are you going to pick if it fits and, and wears the same? Uh, I heard that mm-hmm. from a, uh, another example, another business owner who was creating sustainable homes. If I can create a sustainable home that's going to pay off and make you more money uh, in the long run, are you going to pick this home right now at a higher cost or uh, go with another one? Uh, What what type of uh, decisions are you going to make? So creating comparables in the marketplace, if you can make a product at scale and and bring down the cost where you can compete with another company in today's day and age, I think that company is going to win 10 out of 10 times. Absolutely. And these economies of scale weren't there for a long time. And there was a lot of data as to whether consumers would pay a premium for sustainable products or whatever. But they are by and large more and more there now. And so you really can compete. It will be apples to apples, but then you have this higher order impact. So let's take Nike and Adidas. Nike has been deeply committed amongst other issues to social justice. Colin Kaepernick, Serena Williams, all of these examples they've used. And, you know, that blew up in the media you know, over the last couple of years and has been incredibly timely, especially through the Black Lives Matter. So they've really been about racial equality and social justice and and they've given their athletes a platform. At the same time, Adidas or Adidas has been deeply committed to sustainability and they've really built their whole brand identity around this creators platform. I actually went over to and saw Adidas HQ last year and went over to um, uh, Nuremberg and, you know, you walk into their place in Germany and, you know, it's, it's like a, a, a temple, these amazing buildings that are sort of like temples to creators. And what have they done? They've done the partnership with Parley 
for the oceans, taking ocean plastic out and making shoes out of that. It blew up and drove them so, so much to earn media. More recently, they've done a partnership with Allbirds, an otherwise competitive shoe, and they've done a partnership to develop the world's most carbon-neutral shoes. So they've redefined competition. So here you see two sports brands literally duking it out, one on the strength of social justice, among other issues, one on the strength of sustainability. And in both cases, as somebody looks to buy a pair of trainers or sneakers, that will either win the day for them or it might take them across to another brand. But they are relevant to the world in which people live. And that's why both of these parties are doing it. So is that the message then to a lot of these, I don't know if they're business owners, if they're students at the MBA, at the Harvard School, what exactly are you teaching uh, these students and how do you see uh, the form of education consumption changing over these next couple of years? Yeah, education consumption now is tough. I mean, to oversimplify, everyone's, you know, snacking on content. You know, we've all got a very short attention span and we've got to take things down. It, you know, the, the way I put it is this. We, we used to rebuild our habits in life around the delivery format of education. So we'd sit down and watch a three-hour movie or we would do this or do that. Now we're multitasking while we're watching a movie. People are delivering content in eight-second, ten-second bikes and so on. Podcasts are being delivered in ways that we can listen to them on the commute to work when we were driving to work. So instead of us being built around the education, education is being built or rebuilt or redesigned or re-engineered around our lifestyles. And that increases the, the, the challenge for educators because, you know, content, information, courseware didn't typically wasn't fragmented or fractured but to the, to the same degree and it makes it harder for them to get out there at the same time you know the mind is very plastic and and as i understand it you know over the last decade or so you've really seen young people's minds uh their brains develop differently based on the way that they consume content and knowledge and so on. So it's actually a fool's errand to try and convince these younger minds to go back to the way things were because they think and experience and consume content in very different ways to when I was a young whippersnapper. So, you know, we've got to be, most of us and many companies don't live in the world we are in. They are living in a world 10, 20, you know, 30 years ago, many of them. And if you really want to kind of, resonate and educate in a way that's going to scale, you actually have to look clear-eyed at the reality of the world we live in and create content to that end. Do you think something is going to replace the textbook? I mean, for instance, it's the distribution game. If, uh, if I can make a piece of content that every single educational institution around the world uh, can receive for a better price, again, a comparable that's more purpose-driven, say they're about sustainable businesses versus regular or just traditional business. Um, that's more uh, just better. Uh, it's, it's more entertaining, let's just say. Do you think that could have an impact on uh, education? And why do you think uh, it's so hard to integrate uh, new educational materials into the classroom? Well, you know, it's very personal because I've got a 21 and an 18-year-old daughter, so I can, I'm living this reality. And do I think the textbook will be replaced? Well, I think the term will stay. It'll just be a series of text, text messages, not actually a literal textbook. But all of that is to say um, the, 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 the number one sport today amongst young people who are going to university or school is to see what sort of video they can create and then use as their background in Zoom 
so that their teacher thinks they're actually there while they're actually asleep somewhere else right. or out with their friends. I mean, you know, and these poor teachers, I mean, they are doing everything they can despite their own challenges to keep these kids compelled at arm's length when no one wants to sit and stare at a screen all day, you know, just an Zoom experience. So they're struggling. I mean, in a sense, education right now is set up for failure because in a normal world where we didn't have COVID going on, no one would design it this way, where you sit on your own in a room and stare at a screen with only kind of very limited two-way interaction for hours on end. It just, it just doesn't make sense. You look at the alternative, particularly in Northern European countries where they've got project-based learning, they've got, you know, four or five hour school days, you know, and the, their charts are off the, you know, their schools are off the charts. If you actually look at the, you know, um, the data that comes out each year of the best, the best performing populations around the world of kids in terms of education, they're all of these, school, uh, these countries with programs that are very dissimilar to what you see here in the United States. It's not, you know, working your butt off all day long and stare and now even staring at screens. It's much more sort of, you know, outdoors and project-based learning, and they nurture the creativity inside the individual child instead of shoving the child into the education sausage machine. So all of that is to say COVID has complicated an already difficult problem. And I think the opportunity is, while still doing, you know, honoring the content you're trying to provide, is to build your curriculum, build your delivery formats, build your progress reports and, and how you recognize success and so on, around the, pay, the way that people are living today. And they're consuming, and, and if that content is not presented in a way that they're, it's easy, seamless, instantaneous, and for the right duration for them to consume, why on earth would they adopt it? And why would they stay even if they tried once? So I think we have to rebuild education around the individual instead of the other way around. So as a parent that has uh, two daughters going to university right now, what do you hope they take away with their experience? What is missing and what are your hopes for them? I guess we, that, we had a long, hard discussion. My wife was a high school teacher. Um, you know, both my daughters, my youngest had just got into university and a great scholarship and things like that. And uh, we have decided we pulled them both out of study this year and they are on a plane to Australia in a few weeks for an indefinite one-way trip on their own. Oh, wow. And for, for the school of life, because by their own admission and on, in terms of our opinion, the education experience is very compromised right now. And not only is that difficult to endure anyway, but both my daughters wanted that authentic university experience, you know, with the busy campus, with the dorm rooms, with all the things that make that period of life so special to sit six feet away in the classroom and so on. And this is a personal decision and it's nothing, there's no sense of criticism of anyone who has their kid going to school right Absolutely. now. I mean, these are just personal choices. It just happened to be appropriate to a gap year, gap year for my kids, but it does point back to your, your point about what do we do right now? It's really, really tough already not only are schools sending their kids home because, you know, COVID and so on, but there's a lot of people struggling. You know, from what I hear, my daughter's friends, they're sitting in their apartments adjacent to the university, sitting on Zoom all day. Mm. That's yeah. hard. That's really hard. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people right now that are asking themselves, what is the point of this right now? Why am I paying a full tuition to have my son or daughter learn 
over a Zoom call where the professors don't want to be, the other students don't want to be, and you can't interact with the students. Now, at a public school, right. uh, you're in a, a lecture of 300 plus kids, but at a private school, uh, you you're, you get to know your teacher. You have a one-on-one react, a relationship sure. with them. Uh, there's a lot of people asking themselves right now, education has to change. It, yeah. What's going to happen to it? Your thoughts on the future of education reform? The future of education is a tough one for two reasons. I don't necessarily think we're teaching kids the right things. Mm. You know, to give our kids a better future, we've got to start teaching them what it's going to take to make that future possible. And in a lot of cases, there is very limited awareness or priority given to the issues that they're going to spend the rest of their lives living in or solving for, climate and otherwise. And there are some platforms out there. For example, there's a company called Participate Learning, which actually it's a global learning platform and it brings in education about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals and all these issues like climate into the classroom for kids. So that's one issue. I think, you know, if we really want to set them up for success in this world, we can't just be teaching them stuff that made sense back in the 1980s. It, it, it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense. There's just a dissonance there. At the same time, if you want to then, the second thing is, you know, I think there are a lot of incredible thought leaders and commentators around what the nature of education should look like. And Sir Ken Robinson, who tragically or sadly passed only a few weeks ago, was an enormous thought leader and, and, and educator, really, you know, led the, the dialogue around the traditional education system, you know, crushing the creativity out of children. And so I think, you know, there's, it's a very complicated issues between unions and resources and power and politics and all of these different things. But there's a lot of ways that education should change outright to best serve the kids at the same time as they also need to learn new things to help them solve for the future that rapidly is coming towards them. You mentioned the school of life. Uh, maybe to me that would be understanding different cultures, un- uh, traveling abroad and getting out of your comfort zone, uh, finding out who you are, uh, something that, you know, a classroom really can't teach it, but it might not be for that experience. Maybe college is going to somewhere else. Um, how important to, is it to you that people, you know, coming from Australia, Australia, uh, that people, Australia, get, Australia uh, people from different cultures get to experience a, a, a different uh, sense of way. You know, it's really interesting. I got to say this. I'm a U.S. citizen. I've been here over 20 years. My mother was a Hungarian refugee from the Hungarian Revolution. My wife is Egyptian and her parents escaped Egypt in 67 and came to Australia. Like a lot of people in Australia, you kind of, you escape something or they threw you aside somewhere else. And then we all shag each other furiously and then go out into the world and see what we can do. Right, right. And so I've been lucky enough to spend time in Japan and, and then France for a significant period of time and then five years in London and then five years in Oregon or four years in Oregon and now 20 years in L.A. And my wife being Egyptian, we've had a lot of time in the Middle East. And, you know, you're lucky enough to get this sort of multifaceted experience of what the human family looks like in different versions of life. And there is to some extent, and partly perhaps it's a function of being, you know, the leading nation in the world, there is an insularity that comes with that because everybody around the world, to different degrees, right or wrong, at different times, looks towards the, to the United States aspirationally. They're like, wow, look at what you're doing there. You are shaping culture around the world. You are leading industries, you are et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
in my opinion, not knowing anything different because I grew up in a house of different languages and da da da. How could you do anything but? And I think the greatest education for any young mind is to be forced to interact with different ideas, but also different versions of life. To truly see what poverty looks like on a daily basis. To and you know. One of the gifts of COVID that I think many parents or families have taken away is a lesson that you also get from traveling around, which is it's, it, we've been reminded of the power and priority we should give to the simple things. Time with family, like so much time you have conversations you wouldn't otherwise have, cooking together, playing games, the simple things like the ability to go outside and look at a sunrise or to observe flowers in the garden or to stop running around and walk around your neighborhood at night like so many other people and to go, wow, I didn't like, look at all of this. This is like look at that tree over there or this or that. Like it's, it's given us the opportunity to slow down so we could see what's right in front of us every day. Mm. And so I think going around the world, you'll see these fundamentals of family and food and, and, you know, fun together that we've forgotten because I look back at my life prior to COVID like a madman, jumping around, doing this, calls, this and that, and, and I'm really going to try and um, be intentional about moderating that moving forward. And I do think travel around the world really makes you appreciate that. You know, I've heard COVID as a silver lining about a dozen times in this past week or two. Yeah. From friends, from family members, uh, hell, I've even picked up saying it as well. I mean, I think people yeah. when they started out staying inside, it wasn't as fun, but now people are realizing, just like you said, family's important. It's the little things. That matter now, yep. Simon. I went home about two weeks ago, uh, and one of my favorite things about going back home to Portland, Oregon, is when you get off the airplane, you take a yep. deep breath of that Oregon oxygen and it just fills your lungs, and you go, "I'm back." And you don't yep. get that in Tucson, Arizona, where I went to college. You don't get that really in San Diego. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. I left, however, Simon, it was quite the contrary, quite the opposite. Uh, there were right. fires that were going on. The experience yep. I had of my home state of being an outdoor enthusiast, uh, being able to uh, observe nature in clear days and, and breathe in this oxygen was taken away from us. Mm. The sun was blocked out. Uh, it was mm. The index of air quality was 500. I got four cancellations on my flight because the plane couldn't operate or they, the air traffic control safety had no visibility. It was that bad. So I guess the example mm. I'm trying to make is this. Um, in terms of being aware of environmental destruction, being aware of uh, poverty. How many more experiences do we have to observe for us to come to a realization that we're all into this, all in this together and that we need to work together? Yeah. You know, COVID-19 is a fire drill. You know, we have all been forced to reprioritize what we do to change, to drop our regular lives and to pay daily attention to the conditions we've created together. And here's the funny thing about it all. If we don't listen to a wake-up call as loud as this, then we, to some degree, deserve what we get. Because if you think about it, even above and beyond the world wars, there's never been a moment where there's been a crisis of the same degree that the world, the entire world has experienced at once that cost trillions of dollars, shut down millions of businesses, put people home out of work, kids out of school, and it was something larger than ourselves. If you would argue that, you know, the world wars and so on were 
to a degree, a creation of humanity. You know, we went head to head for whatever the reasons, terrible reasons. So if we don't listen to that, then we're kind of ticking the box of like, do you want to survive? Yes or no, as a species. Because the reality is, is COVID doesn't care. Climate doesn't care. I mean, they don't really care where you went to school, what your job title is, what type of car you drive, or why you made whatever choice you made that compounded the problem. So I look at it now and say, this is giving us a pause to reset our perspective or to look in a new way because we've spent the last several day, decades looking but not seeing what's going on. We've been listening but not hearing the damage we're doing. Mm. And this pause is forcing us to literally stay at home, do nothing, shut down, and really think through on a daily basis on a private emotional level a life or death scenario. And, you know, the connective tissue between each other and the planet is, is, has been thrown into stark relief and here's the thing that I find so amusing about, not amusing, just strange about it all. This presumption that we could somehow just take care of ourselves, profit for profit's sake, me first mentality, all of that, presumes that somehow we can do something and it won't have a knock-on effect. We're just going to kind of engorge ourselves and the consequences won't matter. But the reality is whether we are trying to look after ourselves or look after others, we're still connected. So as you say, we are in this together, whether we're taking care of ourselves at the cost of everybody else or thinking in a behavior in a way, thinking and behaving in a way that's actually going to serve everybody else and then ultimately ourselves. We can't deny our connectedness to each other and the planet. Mm. So the choice we're facing is very simple. Do we want to put ourselves out of business or do we want to, you know, be on the right side of history and nature because nature doesn't care, you know, and nature is regenerative and fundamentally abundant and it can provide for all these things we need, but not if we line our own pockets at the sake of everybody else. So we are in this together. And what I kind of object to most of late is just the false conceit that we have that we can somehow even live in a way that's profit for profit's sake or just live in a me first kind of way. Because we're just denying the fundamental truth that every action we take individually and collectively has a con an impact on others and, and on the planet. And we're now reaching that threshold moment where we've got to choose. Are we, because nature will win. Nature will win. The planet will be fine without us. Nature will win. So do we want to be on the side of nature or not? Exactly. Uh, we can't deny it. Uh, we, we essentially are dead to an earth that is alive. Exactly. Yeah, it is very sad. And, and I am the one to say, you know, there aren't any excuses anymore. You have just like we've talked about on the show, you have to go out and try extra hard to find more female guests that come on the show. Right. You have to wow. go out and find those suppliers that are, are, are fair trade, that mm -hmm. are uh, regenerative mm -hmm. agriculture, that are uh, mm -hmm. organic farmers. You have to take the extra step in order to make this change. There aren't any more excuses anymore. And I had an interesting conversation today. With our founder, he was saying the difference between success and significance. We need to change this idea yeah. of success. It's not maximizing yeah. shareholder value. It's, it's be, being significant in the world. What does that mean to you? What are your thoughts on success versus significance? 
there's a couple of thoughts, and I, I touched on one thought um, on a previous show we did, which is the idea of fulfillment. And it's this core idea that I've learned over my journey of the last 20 or 30 years um, as an Aussie schlepping his butt all around the world trying to see if there's something else going on. I need to discover the simple stuff that matter, matters most. But, you know, fulfillment is an inside-out job. You know, we think that if you get awards or recognition or money or a job or a fancy car, that that's going to fill you up. But it doesn't. You know, you fill yourself up by what you give to others. So this service mentality is actually one of the great secrets that most people don't come to. But I think this younger generation is more predisposed. Why? Because the conditions in which they find themselves are so acute and drastic that they're just showing up that way and they're innately empathetic and they want to they play um, a meaningful role. And then, you know, significance is an, is an interesting word. Um, I think we all have the opportunity how would I put it? When I look, we could learn a lot from um, indigenous people around the world. And I, I say for this reason, um, you know, I had a conversation with a wonderful author and change agent, Lynn Twist, who wrote this book called The Soul of Money. And she runs the Pachamama Alliance, which takes CEOs to the headwaters in the Amazon. And it literally transforms how they see the world. And then they change their companies. She's an incredible inspiration. And one of the things she was sharing was amongst Indigenous nations, whether you're talking about Eskimos, Native Americans, Aboriginals in Australia, not to oversimplify, but there's a common theme that it's not about um, having as much as you can have. It's about sufficiency. And someone who takes more than they need is actually considered crazy, as in mentally unwell, because it competes with the well-being of the whole. Mm. It robs the entire ecosystem of its ability to kind of sustain growth and regenerate life and therefore provide for the whole community. So effectively, in terms of our relationship with nature, to extrapolate from that, we are all insane the way that we're living our lives. We are literally choking the oceans, polluting the air, you know, um, killing the soil on which we all depend. So, you know, it's a very different idea. So coming back to your point about significance, I think significance is not about importance, it's not about wealth. It's not about success. Significance is about being very sober in terms of the role that you want to play in, in life. And as an extension of that, adopting a servant leader mentality where you want to lead, but you want to be of service to others. And then by recognizing that the well-being of the whole is the fastest and smartest way to secure the well-being of the individual parts, including yourself. And so, you know, I say that on the strength of starting We First and then working with big brands to help them make a difference because they were the biggest levers that I thought about that I could pull, much bigger than I could ever do on my own if I was working on a nonprofit or something like that. Work with these big companies and, and, and social enterprise and make a difference. So my hope for significance in terms of my time is to help as many of us and leverage the biggest levers to make a difference in a way that can, you know, contributes to others. And I think that's where significance is found. And um, if you're successful at doing that, then you have significance. It, it, I've heard it so many times, whether it's from Jay Shetty, the, uh, a monk mm -hmm. who says the most fulfilled people in this world are, are monks who yeah. practice uh, on, on their minds, whether it's from Akon, mm -hmm. uh, a multi, multi-millionaire who says uh, you have all these millions and then what? You can't leave with it. There's no, no. You know, there's no purpose of it. There's no fulfillment. That's why he's going out and doing so many philanthropic things or, or building a, an eco city powered entirely by solar energy. Yeah. 
how does one practice fulfillment? How does one practice significance? How does one practice and strengthen the mind if you're saying fulfillment is an inside out job? You know, it's interesting. It's the right question, but the answer is sort of a little counterintuitive in the sense that it's not something that we have to do that's different to what we've done, but rather it's something we have to remember what we forgot. Mm. I believe fundamental to human nature, when we come into this world and you see it in children, we are naturally empathetic, we are loving, we are nurturing, we care for each other, we have a visceral response to the natural environment. And somehow that gets educated and taught out of us, explicitly or implicitly, throughout our lives. And so in a similar, or not a hugely dissimilar way to what COVID has done, which has forced us to pause and reassess things, we need to recalibrate who we are or kind of strip away all of these outside influences that are telling us who to be and to recognize inside who you are. For example, you know, for a long time, I was an ad guy traveling around and I don't know, I was trying to be a cool or successful ad guy, but it never gelled with me. At the end of the day, I'm a family guy who gets really affected when I see other people suffer. I'm just like empathetically, I just, I can't, it doesn't sit with me. I can't just dismiss it. I can't look away. And when, when you make a commitment where you find alignment between who you are and what you do on a daily basis, that's when you find fulfillment. And in my experience, that alignment is most readily achieved and has the greatest degree of significance in your life when you're being of service to others. And, that, and the tool of your trade could be a business. It could be a product innovation. It could be a nonprofit. It could be a multi-billion dollar global corporation. But when you shift your thinking from self-aggrandizement or winning or getting ahead of the other or, you know, this whole winner-takes-all mentality, and you really say, how can I be of greater service to everyone who touches my company, whether it's the suppliers, employees, and so on? Everything changes. And I think what it taps into is our innate disposition to be connected to each other, to be connected to the planet. And, you know, I guess to oversimplify, there's a distinction between selfishness and healthy self-interest. It is very healthy for human beings to be self-interested. They need to look after themselves, their families and so on. But when it crosses over into selfishness, where your success or whatever comes at the cost of somebody else, that's when it gets problematic. Simon, uh, next month we talk, uh, there will be an election that already had, will have had taken place. Now, I don't want your political opinion on all. This is not a political show. Uh, however, I, I do want what you hope uh, for the world that will happen. Regardless of who wins, what is a reaction or a type of understanding you would like from the world? Yeah, I think um, politics aside, it's very difficult to do what we're going to need to do for humanity and the planet when we're so polarized. Mm. And so whatever the result, I want it to be unifying. My great hope would be, be something that bring people together. Why? I think at the end of the day, the, the future is a story we write every day. We wake up each day and by our thoughts, our actions, our choices, we're literally crafting the future. We're building it brick by brick each day through our collective actions. And to that end, for a long time, humanity is like one big family sitting around a campfire telling stories. We've come together and said, oh, let's go to the moon or let's peaceful resistance or the civil rights movement, whatever it might be. Right now, I feel like we've broken off into several different camps 
and they each have their core groups sitting around a campfire, but we're not sharing the same stories. Mm. And those stories aren't unifying for everyone. And so I don't think that we can move forward to the degree or at the pace we need until we're, we're aligned around a shared story. And that story needs to be focused on how we nurture our planet to better our, everyone's future. And so my great hope would be that this would be the final chapter, the, the coda, the curtains closing on rising division, not just here in the United States, but around the world, and a recognition that we are one human family all perched on this very precious blue orb that is hurtling through space. And our time here and the time of our kids and their kids is very, very insignificant. But our collective actions while we're here are hugely significant in terms of the quality of life that everyone will enjoy. I love it. Well, Simon, I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about in a month. Thanks again for coming back on the podcast. And all in the, you all are with welcome. This, I would just say for anyone out there who is afraid to have a heat exchange or if you do have a heat exchange, always wrap up with the question of what can we agree upon? Because there's always something in the middle. So just want to say that. And those will be my last words today. Any last words from you, Simon, on this on third episode? All I would share is that, you know, we're lucky enough in our work at WeFirst to talk to lots of folks who are doing the type of work that we're talking about. Small companies, large companies. And I had this podcast that leadwithwe.com leadwithwe.com you, you check it out and you'll hear from the CEOs and presidents and SVPs of some of the most purposeful companies out there and the only reason we do these things is so that more people can benefit from their hard won lessons so if that's useful to you love you to check it out and, and so on that'd be great wonderful great review subscribe do all those things that people do on those things help Simon out folks leadwithwe.com go on there hit the subscribe scroll all the way down to the bottom keep scrolling and leave a review from Mr. Mangrove here. Simon, for the third episode of the Keep It Real series, just want to appreciate you coming back on the show. We'll see you next month. And always, Simon, keep it real. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. A pleasure as always. Of course. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the third ever Keep It Real series with Simon Mainwaring. We're going to keep it going, folks, as we have just scheduled six more recurring sessions with Simon Mainwaring to come on the show and we want to know your questions. Email us b at real-leaders.com that's b-e at real hyphen leaders.com send us your questions for Simon and we'll make sure to ask them on the show. Also if you just want to join live on the show go to realleaders.com go to the podcast events and RSVP for any upcoming episode on Crowdcast where you can attend live for free and ask questions to real leaders. Lastly, folks, we're at 45 reviews right now and we'd love to hear from you. So when people come to this channel, they know what it's all about. Go to Apple Podcasts, scroll all the way down to the bottom and please leave a review. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.